0: Father, we are grateful to be in this room together. We're grateful for this season that we call Advent, this time that we remember that you sent your son Jesus to earth, and we, were, we reflect on the implications of that. And would you help us do that this morning, Lord? Would you speak to us in ways that help us take spiritual steps we ought to be taking? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have been looking forward to this weekend for some time, and I've been praying about this weekend. It's kind of special. I want to tell you what I'm going to do in this message. I'm going to talk a little bit about the scriptures, uh, a piece of the Christmas story, and then we're going to hear from somebody who, um, through various situations, has had to practice something called surrendering. And uh, then I want to talk to you about uh, an important decision that really every single one of us finds ourselves confronted with having to make this decision, particularly when we find out about Jesus and we hear about Jesus. Um, Now, before we do any of that, I want to read to you. And this is not going to be on the screen, so you're actually going to have to listen. If you really want to engage people and get their attention in our culture, you read to them. (laughs) So you're going to have to work here to listen, okay? This is part of the Christmas story. This is from Matthew chapter 2. And this is the word of God, and this is what it says. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where was the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler, a king in fact, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's an interesting prophecy. A king who's gonna be a shepherd. Kings are not usually shepherds. On coming to the house, so they're in a house now, not a stable. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Just one Part of one segment of this great story that we refer to as the Christmas story. This season, we've been using kind of a, a little tool uh, to help us prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. Uh, the first week, we, we uh, learned a part or a piece of this thing called the serenity prayer. And uh, it goes like this God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That's the first piece. And when we talked about that, we looked at Mary's life. There are lots of things that came into Mary's life, things that she had to accept, she couldn't change. She really had to accept them. she needed peace to do that because her life was anything but peaceful with uh, the upheaval of these events in her life. The next week after that, we prayed, God, give me the courage to change the things I can. And uh, if you have not heard those messages, then you know go online, you can watch them, you can hear them there, but here's the deal. These two prayers one for serenity and one for courage. When you pray these prayers, they, they tend to leave you with a problem. Uh, sometimes it's hard to know, do I accept this thing or do I need to change this thing? Uh, say somebody in my life is clutchy or needy. And if I try to talk to them about that, uh, they say to me, well, that's just who I am. You, you just have to accept that's who I am. And if I say, well, no, That doesn't have to be who you are. God can change us. You don't have to be clutchy. You don't have to be needy. You could be different. You could see a counselor. You could change your thinking. You could enhance uh, kind of a new way of approaching life and people. You don't have to be whiny, clutchy, needy, that kind of thing. But if that person says, uh, yeah, I'm not really interested in that, or I don't like what you're saying, or if they reject uh, what I offer, what do I do? What do I do? Do I leave it there? Do I persist? What do I do? What would wisdom have me do? A parent might say, well, you know, I have an adult child and they're about to make a terrible decision. I can see it. It's clear as day. I think they're going into a relationship that's not going to be good for them at all. They're talking about getting married. It's a mistake. I don't know what to do. Do I say something? Do I just accept it? Because after all, they are adults. Hmm. Do I try to change them? Do I speak into it? Do I get involved in the situation? What do I do? I need wisdom. Or maybe I'm a very, very introverted person. Some of us here are very, very introverted, right? Um, I don't really like socializing. I prefer kind of just being alone, doing my own thing. That's who I am. But I follow Jesus and I hear stuff like, love your neighbor, serve one another, go make disciples. I, you know, I don't even know my neighbor. I don't really want to know them. Um, do I challenge myself? What, what do I do with this? Maybe it wouldn't kill me to make eye contact with another person once or twice a week, you know. <laughs> do I need the courage to change something or do I need the serenity to accept it? That's the question. And that's what we're going to look at this week. God, give me the serenity to accept what I cannot change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, We've been looking at the Christmas story, pieces of it, all through this series. This week, we're, of course, talking about wisdom. And so, of course, we're talking about the wise men. And um, I want to look at the wise men, and then I'm going to, after we've looked at their story, I'm going to be inviting you to consider a decision which they made. I'll be challenging you with that decision. Um, These are the wise men here, these are actually life size sculptures. Life-size sculptures. You can purchase one of them for $8,700. These are hideous. Who would ever, what was the artist even thinking? Uh, Anyway, um, I think that the wise men really are some of the most intriguing, the most mysterious characters that we have in the Christmas story. Some people even wonder, in fact, why are they a part of the Christmas story? Who are these people? Uh, Somebody wrote about what it would have been like if instead of wise men, you had three wise women. The story would have been completely different if you think about it. Uh, They would have asked directions sooner. And they would have arrived on time instead of showing up maybe as much as two years late. Um, they would have helped deliver the baby. They would have helped clean the stable up before they left. They would have made a casserole. They would have brought practical gifts that could have been used right then, right there. The whole story would have been different. But we don't have three wise women. We have, we have three wise men. And um, I want to talk for a moment about why maybe they are in the story. Why do these people show up? And I'm going to suggest two things. There may be lots of reasons, but I'm going to suggest two. The first one is this. I think the wise men embody a basic wisdom decision that every human being is going to have to face. What I was referring to just a moment ago. When Jesus came into the world and people started finding out about Jesus, here's the thing. When you find out about Jesus, you you kind of have to respond one way or another. You just have to. Back to the story for a second. Uh, we read that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and when it rose, uh, and we saw its star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, This is a, a very stark contrast that we encounter here in the Christmas story. A contrast between Herod and the wise men. The wise men are actually looking for a king. Herod is and wants to continue being that king. Herod's primary goal was to stay on the throne in his little world Herod is master of the universe he doesn't want that to change he has no intention of getting off the throne or resigning his position and he is really disturbed by the news because understand Herod's title literally was king of the Jews that was his title and so hearing that somebody else is being born who might claim that title, that's a big problem for Herod. If you know anything about Herod, he's an interesting historical figure. Uh, Herod is the guy who killed three of his own sons. Uh, he killed one of his wives. He had 10 or 11 of them. Uh, it's like, not like he didn't have one to spare, but, but he killed one of his wives. Also killed one of his mother's in law, and uh, he did all of this because he feared that these individuals in his family were threatening and plotting behind his back to take away his throne. Uh, it's interesting too, just an aside, as the one wife he killed was probably the one wife he actually loved, but he would set that aside his feelings and affections for her because he perceived her to be a threat. And took her life. Anyway, just shows how desperate he's holding on to this, right? If you want to be king, here's the thing. If you want to be king and uh, somebody else, in this case Jesus, comes along who claims to be that king, one of you will have to give way because there is only room for one king. That's the way the king thing works. Um, that was true then, that is still true today. Uh, In any life, there is only room for one king on the throne. We've been learning as we studied, uh, this is before we came into December, we were studying the Sermon on the Mount and we've been learning that every life really is its own little kingdom. We've used that kind of language. Uh, Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. It's where you can control some of the things that happen. That's your little kingdom. And every kingdom, of course, has a little throne in it, right? And the question for today is, who is sitting on the throne of your kingdom? It's probably you, much of the time. I know in my kingdom, it's usually often me, and there's a wrestling match that goes on. We'll talk more about that in a minute. There's a, there's a chair. You can Google this. I'm not making this up. There's a chair called the Extreme Power U.S. Leather Boss Executive Luxury Chair. There it is. Uh, that's the title. It's an ergonomic design, has padded leather cushions and stuff, has a little gas hydraulic switch that enables you to elevate yourself so that you can be the tallest one in the room at any given moment. Uh, to this day, we call the person who's in a chair like this and who's in charge, we call them the chairman, right? Or the chair person. It's the person who sits in the seat of authority. Uh, the chairman is the person who has that, that chair of power, if you will. And when you sit in that seat, you feel powerful. I'm thinking of buying one of these just to get some respect from the staff um, so I can be taller than them in any meeting that we have. Here's the thing, there is a little King Herod inside every one of us. Uh, I know I resist the claim that there's a sovereign God, a God who is in control, who wants to rule over my life. Something in me rebels, pushes back against that. Just like in you. I'm thinking you probably do the same thing. I want my ego on the throne. I want to be master of the universe, especially my little piece of the universe. Surrender is not an easy thing. Surrender can be costly. Surrender will almost always feel risky. Uh, Surrender can lead to real difficulties, surrendering to God, surrendering to Jesus. On one end of the surrender continuum, uh, there's a guy by the name of Paul, the apostle Paul. And he was a guy who opposed Jesus. He opposed the way, he opposed Christianity. He was trying to gather up Christians and put them to death or lock them up if he could. And then he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, his whole life gets reoriented and turned around and he becomes a follower of Jesus and he surrenders his his life to Jesus. And this is what he writes about his life, describing himself after he did that. He said, five times I received from the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. In other words, you know, being beaten, being whipped 39 times. Uh, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers, people pretending to be followers of Jesus. All because Paul had surrendered himself to Jesus. Anybody here want to surrender? Woo! It was costly for Paul to Follow Jesus, if we're going to tell the truth. I mean, Paul did not live a prosperous life. Paul did not live a life of comfort. Paul did not live a life without difficulties, as we just read. Interestingly enough, you would would think that would have been the death of a movement, right? I mean, if that's true, who's going to follow this king called Jesus? And yet millions of people have. Millions of people decide to follow him. Uh, people still do this. They still choose to surrender to Jesus. And when it, even when it means, you know, uncertainty, facing uncertainty, taking risks, uh, experiencing challenges, costly challenges, uh, I want you to hear from uh, the, the wife of one of our staff folks uh, here at church. This is just her kind of casually answering the question, uh, have you had to surrender? What does surrender look like in your life? Take a look.
1: What does it look like to surrender my life, my kingdom, for God's kingdom? Let's start off with I guess when I met Aaron, my husband, in college. Um, at the time, he was a music major, and I didn't really know what our life was gonna look like, but I had a dream, a picture, like a delusion basically, that um, he was going to be like a rock star drummer. And a band income's gonna be great we're just gonna have an easy breezy life um but that is not what happened into that god called us into ministry into music ministry and we decided to move to colorado soon after we got married and that was really really tough um, leaving my family leaving california a life where i was comfortable. I just, that was really hard to, to give that up. Um, but we did, we moved here and got our first ministry job and, um, things were, were going pretty good. And then God said, Nope, you're going to go to Colorado Springs and serve me there. And so we went to Colorado Springs and life, um, was getting, was getting really great actually. Our kids went to a good school. Um, we got really involved in that school. We had good friends. His position at the time at that church was going really well. And I thought, this is great. And we got dental insurance. And when you can get dental insurance, you have made it in life. Um, so I felt, I felt good. And we purchased our first home too. Uh, So we just continued to live that life for a little bit. So things at that church in Colorado Springs weren't going the way we planned in our own kingdom. So um, our marriage was falling apart. (laughs) Our family was falling apart. We were a wreck. So we decided the best thing to do would be to resign from that position and just surrender to God in hopes that life would be different and um, just hopefully get better before they got worse. Uh, so, for six months, we went without a job. And of course, when you don't have a job, it's the best time to get pregnant. So, we got pregnant with our fourth child, Nehemiah, and that is just a whole nother added stressor. But at the end of the six months, we got a job here at Deer Creek, and that has been such a blessing. Uh, Our family has thrived again. We feel so loved by the community and the people here, and we feel like this is where God needed us to be right now in life. Don't get me wrong, life is still extremely messy, and it's not roses and candy canes, it's messy all the time, especially raising four silly, fun, crazy, chaotic boys in ministry. And I'm sure that um, we still have a lot of surrendering to do to God and his kingdom in years to come.
0: Uh, Two things. We do not have dental insurance. (laughs) And uh, the other thing is, if you, the point of that video is that if you surrender your life to Jesus, you will wind up at Deer Creek Church. <laughs> no. Unpredictability. You know, that's what surrender kind of means. You don't know where God's going to lead you. You don't know if it's going to be into something that feels real comfortable or something that challenge everything, uh, everything about being comfortable. But here's the thing, wisdom... Wisdom would tell us to surrender, surrender wholly, surrender completely. Um, if you're going to exercise wisdom and live wisely, you have to come to grips with, you know, am I going to be the master of my universe or am I going to resign and say, God, I want you to come and to take charge of my life. And the wise men kind of give us that picture. They, they remind us of what it means, what it can look like to surrender to God and do something Unpredictable. Something risky. Uh, You know, in this story that we read, Herod wants to be king. He's not going to let go of that. The wise men are actually looking for a king to worship and to follow. And that was actually a costly thing for them. Now, uh, I think this is one of the reasons that the whole wise wise men's story occurs in scripture. It's a challenge to us to live wisely or not wisely. It's the contrast between Herod and the contrast between the wise men. Um, The wise men did a long journey to make a discovery and they weren't sure what they were going to discover. More of this in a minute, but you know, they're following a star and uh, they thought they knew what that represented, but I think they were surprised once they got there what they actually found. We'll come back to that. Here's another reason I think that the wise men are in this story. Uh, And this is an important one, uh, really important, I think. The wise men are a picture of God's heart for people who frankly don't seem to even belong in the story. (laughs) You know, they're a picture of God's grace. I mean, you might know this about the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a Jewish story, right? It's about the nation of Israel. It's about a king coming who would be king of the Jews. It's about a baby who himself, of course, Jesus is a, is a Jew. He's not a Gentile. He's not from the East. This is a, an Israelite story. And uh, the wise men, uh, not Israelites. That's not where they're from. In fact, we're told they're from the East, probably Persia is where that means. We don't know for sure, uh, but we do know they're not a part of Israel, which means all kinds of things. It means they don't have the scriptures. They don't have the Torah to study day in, day out. They don't go to temple because they didn't live in Jerusalem. They don't worship the one true God. They don't really belong in this story. And even worse, it's worse. They, they're actually called magi, which is the same word we get the word magician from. They practice the art The skill, it was thought at that time, of astrology. And the Bible is quite opposed to astrology, just like it is to fortune-telling or things like sorcery. And that is because of the worldview that's represented by the practice of astrology. You know, um, in astrology... You don't believe that there's one true God. You don't believe that he's all powerful, all knowing, all wise. Uh, you don't believe that he's holy, that he's that He's righteous, that he's good. You don't believe there's one God who made it all, created it all, sustains it all, and moves everything toward a wonderful, purposeful, good ending. No, that's, that is not what you believe. What you believe is, is that your life, my life, everybody's life, our destinies are actually governed by the planets, the position of the stars, by spirits and by demagogues. And the Bible says that is not true. These things do not hold your life, your destiny in their hand. Astrology was and is really a form of idolatry. Uh, Somebody who practiced astrology... um, Uh, is that's just a belief where where people want to tap into a spiritual power, use that spiritual power to serve themselves. You know, get a little edge on knowing the future, get a little knowledge on how to influence the people around you uh, to create the outcomes that you want to see created. And all of that without being really concerned for others or concerned for justice or concerned for mercy and compassion and love and truth and good. Astrology's not really about those things. And because God is a personal God and a, has a supremely good character, you can see why this would bother him. You can see why idolatry is an abomination, points people away from the God who made them and who loves them. And toward other things, kind of a very self centered uh, approach to life. Uh, it's interesting, every other use of the word magi in the New Testament is negative, except for in the Christmas story, except for right here. And ironically, you could even say amazingly, God sends the magi a what? What does He send them? A star. Wow, what's with that? It's as if God meets them where they are in the practice of their astrology. In other words, he uses their false, idolatrous, even misleading, superstitious belief in astrology to lead them on a quest that ends up where they had no idea it would end, which is namely to Jesus. That's where it ends up. And these guys, ethnically, religiously, historically, even morally, they have no business really being in this story, the story of Jesus, except this. You know, Jesus' story is one where nobody's perfect, these wise men weren't, and everybody's welcome. The wise men were welcome. And uh, it's funny, when they come and they see this child, uh, they, they actually, they see baby Jesus, they're in this home that they're in. It's so fascinating. It says, they bow their heads, they bend their knees. In other words, they worship Now, we're not really given a lot of detail here, but something clicks for these guys. Maybe they knew some Jewish scripture before starting out on this journey. Um, Maybe they understand that there's a prophecy about a king who's gonna come, who's gonna be Messiah, who's someday gonna rule and reign, we don't know. But somewhere, somehow, along the way, things click for them. And they don't just come to see a king, they come to worship a king. That's what they do. They connect with God. You know, interestingly, that's not that different from what we try to do here week after week after week. And really, our worship of God often kind of works this way. You see, when you really meet God, you begin to realize that many of your ideas about him once upon a time. Or many of your objections about who God is or, you know, well, he's, he's this, he's that, he's not this, he's not that. You begin to understand that a lot of those ideas as you really meet him, those ideas were just wrong. Those preconceived notions were just wrong. He's not who you think he is. And the wise men discover this when they encounter Jesus. Um, you know, they find out that he is kind, that God is good. You find out too, when you really get to know God, that he, he hates sin, but not because he's a killjoy, but because sin destroys us. Sin destroys the world we live in. When you find out that here is a God who wants people to know him, he's going after people. He wants people to live life to the full and to do that through relating to him. And we, we see this really in the story of the wise men because God is pursuing them. These men from the East, God is pursuing them. Now contrast that with Herod. Herod had all the benefits of the Jewish faith, right? I mean, he lives right there in Jerusalem. It was all right at his fingertips. He had the Jewish scriptures. He had the temple right there. He had scribes and teachers of the law. And yet he had murder. He had murder in his heart for this baby Jesus. These guys, the wise guys, they had no scripture. They had no temple. They had a star that's what they followed. They followed a star. And when they left Herod, the, the, the story told us this. They went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, what in the world is this star? Anybody know the answer? The answer is we don't know. We really don't know what this is. I mean, some people try to tell us this, uh, you know, an astro phenomenon of sorts, which it was certainly that, but stars don't move around. They don't lead you to where babies are. I mean, so whatever this is, this is really totally supernatural. This is uh, nothing that would ordinarily uh, occur. Uh, and they're following this thing. It leads them to baby Jesus. And it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And understand because this star, this miraculous supernatural star leads them to baby Jesus. And when they found him, they had worship in their hearts contrast to Herod that had murder in his and they discover there is a God and he's he's not out there someplace connected to stars and planets he's actually personal this is a God who from out there came to here from up there he came down here to earth and he was right there in front of them they could see him they could touch him they could give him gifts and here's the thing they didn't see probably didn't understand until they got there. This is a king. This is a Messiah. This is a God of great humility and poverty. Comes as a baby, vulnerability. This is a king unlike any other king. Now, here's the thing. You see, I I believe that God still sends out the stars, so to speak, to bring people to Jesus all the time. He's all the time doing this, the same type of thing. I think the star happens anytime your life gets interrupted by an event that sends you on a quest where you begin to search for answers. And a lot of times it could be a victory that triggers this. It could be a failure that triggers this. I mean, I've seen parents, uh, oh, I've seen young couples and they'll they'll get pregnant and they'll have a baby and it takes a little while before they start realizing, yeah, I don't have a clue how to make this work, right? And it definitely happens by the time they're teenagers if it doesn't happen earlier on. And you're kind of wanting to say, God help me. If there's a God out there, I need help, you know? So, so sometimes it'll be a real, a real victory, a really good thing in your life that will turn your attention to God to consider who he might be and how you might relate to him. Sometimes it's failure. And if I'm honest, I probably would say, more often than not, it's failure in our lives. That, gets our attention and turns us to God. It can be a divorce, a loss of a job, a problem in your family, a heartache, anything, anything that sends you searching for something more is a little bit like this star thing. I came across a book some months ago that I read. It's by a young woman named Holly Hayes. It's called From Basement to Sanctuary. It's really just her testimony about how God worked in her life. She comes to know Jesus and in this book, she shares what she believes. she really wound up being on the streets and addicted to all kinds of things. And um, she got involved in a recovery program. Where do recovery programs meet? Always in the basement, right? I don't know why, you can't have one if you don't have a basement, Uh, but they they meet in a basement. And that's where she kind of began a recovery process out of uh, all kinds of addictions and debilitating things. And then she eventually made it up into the sanctuary. And the point of her book really is that these two things need each other. Because down there in that recovery program, everybody's being, uh, in that that recovery program, everybody's being honest, truth is getting told and lives are being changed and miracles are happening. But a lot of times it happens without Jesus. I mean, in other words, he's not the center, he's not the core, he's not the priority. And when she came up into the sanctuary, she discovered, for goodness sake, that's who God is. And so she wants to see these, you know, these two things come together and she's got an incredible life story of the powerful way that Jesus worked in her life. I want you to take a look if you would. The
2: question why can be a dangerous thing, especially when it goes unanswered. It can cause us to react to life and the things that it throws at us in extreme ways why is this happening? Why isn't this happening? Why would they do that to me, say that to me, let that happen to me? Why can't I stop? Why won't this end? Why don't I look like that? Why don't I have more? Why is this so hard? These questions can haunt us, and when left unanswered, create a world around us that we desperately want to escape from. As a 14-year-old girl who had friends, was good in school, and was excelling at things I loved, life started to deal me cards that caused me to ask some hard questions. Why are my parents getting divorced? Why was I the one they picked to abuse? Why do I feel afraid all the time? I didn't grow up in church. I had no idea who God really was, and I thought Jesus was for weird Christian freaks who hated everyone that didn't look or think like them. I had no foundation of faith or hope that could help me answer these questions or offer me any kind of relief from the turmoil that was swirling around me. My questions went unanswered. And more and more the world that was forming around me grew darker. I needed out. By 15 I was drinking and doing drugs every day. By 16, I had dropped out of school. By 19, I had been arrested multiple times, had two DUIs, had been abused, and had had three abortions. And as a 21-year-old, I found myself homeless because what had started as an escape had turned into an addiction. February 10th, 2001. I was lying on the floor of a public bathroom after just being abused, numb to everything except this overwhelming, mounting hopelessness. My tears rolled off my cheeks and hit the dirty ground beneath me. Without thinking, without analyzing or strategizing, three words fell out of my mouth. God help me. I don't remember why I said it. I had no foundation for it. I didn't know who God was, where he was, or if he even existed. But as everything was being stripped away, almost like a survival instinct, my soul cried out and my soul's creator answered. I left that bathroom and that very night came into contact with someone who helped me get into a recovery program. That was February 10th, 2001 and I've been sober since February 11th, 2001. Everything that happened in those following days, my sobriety, getting healthy again, going back to school and eventually graduating from college, I attested all of it to that simple prayer, but I still had no idea who this God was that answered it. This God that I didn't know, had never served, or worshipped, or obeyed came flooding in. I never thought to look for God in the Bible, but one night I stumbled upon a story of a woman who had been caught in adultery fully admitting her guilt and wrong, knowing that historically the punishment would be stoning, Jesus addresses her accusers, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I read that and in that moment felt like I was face to face with the God who saved me. This is the God that goes around to public bathrooms, picking girls up off the floor and setting them free, giving them a whole new life. This was the God that saved me. This was my God. Today, when I look at the cross, I realize that the cross isn't just a picture of Jesus giving me salvation. It's a picture of him giving me healing, wholeness, identity, freedom, hope, and a future. And none of it stipulates on my ability to be good or right. Because what Jesus gave, he gave all at once. He didn't divvy it all out for me like gold stars for good behavior. He gave in spite of my behavior. God wasn't hiding from me. He wasn't waiting for me to get to him. He was just waiting for me to ask for him. And when I did, when I reached out to him, not even knowing if he was really there, he gave me everything. He gave me Jesus.
0: I think that's a great story. Uh, God isn't waiting for us to find him. Uh, He's not hiding anywhere. He just waits for us to ask. And I would say, you know, the truth is, we are all of us either in recovery from our sin or we're in denial of it. It's one or the other. Uh, When we pretend to have it all together, when we pretend that our sin is not killing us, (laughs) we live deceived. We're not living in wisdom. But I would say this too, because of Jesus' change, recovery, that is available to each and every one of us each and every day. New life in Jesus is available for everyone. There is no sin that uh, is too big, too great, too ugly for him to forgive. There is no brokenness. There is no mess that he can't eventually unravel in us. No life that he can't redeem for his own glory because that's really the purpose and, you know, I'm, I'm tempted because, I, I, you know, we, we could pass a mic around, and I know some of you have great stories, very much like uh, Ms. Hayes here, who, whose life was transformed and changed, but we'd be here, I think, all afternoon. I think what I want to do in the moments that remain to us is just kind of call the question on this. You know, who's going to be on the extreme power U.S. leather boss executive luxury chair of your life? Really, who's that gonna be? You know, the truth about our church is we're a basement church. Now, churches forget this real fast. And so we're always trying to remind ourselves that we're a basement church. We are not perfect. Every one of us here desperately, desperately, desperately needs Jesus every single day. It's a funny thing. I think it's only when somebody gets to the point where they can say, you know what? I cannot pretend anymore. Or when they can say, I can't prop it up anymore. Or when they can say, I can't try looking good for everyone every day all the time. God, I am honestly really struggling here. At times I'm a train wreck without you. I need you to save me, to enter in, to guide me, to point me in the directions I need to go. I need you to rescue me. And you know, here's the thing, my observation is that every time a person does that, God reveals himself, he reveals himself. <laughs> but as long as we think, you know what, I'm okay, I'm decent, I'm respectable, I'm doing all right, I'm doing better than you, uh, I, I don't need God, well, guess what, I don't need God and, and I don't see him, he's not revealing himself to me he won't usually reveal himself to people who are thinking that way, people who are sitting in the seat. So again, here's the question, who's going to sit in that seat of your life? And I I would just tell you, understand, you're not a good option to sit in that executive chair. You're, You're really not, and here's why. Because you don't control very much. You really don't. Neither do I. And yet you can know the God who wants to oversee your life and care for you, the God who controls it all and overcomes the evil in this world. Now, if you don't know that God, we want to give you a gift, $1,000. So stand up if you don't know God. (laughs) No, no, uh, you wish. Uh, What we want to do is if you don't know that God... Out in the lobby at the welcome table, there are some Bibles, they didn't cost $1,000, but there's one out there for people like me, it's large print New Testament. You know, I can read it without my glasses, okay? There's another one out there, Old Testament, New Testament, and the print's a little smaller. But the point is this, if you don't have a Bible and you wanna know about this God, please take one. Take one of those Bibles before you leave. Start reading in the gospel of John. Turns out that's how God worked in my life. Many, many years ago, a person encouraged me to read the gospel of John in the New Testament. and I started doing that and changed my life completely. Slowly, but completely. Um, and if you would do that, let me tell you something. You would begin to learn about how God works. You would begin to learn about who God is. And you would begin to discover that God loves you and wants you to have a relationship with him. In the Bible, we find these statements, and they're statements that are made about all human beings. One of them is just this, all we like sheep have gone astray. So it's a picture, really. You know, sheep wander around without a shepherd. They don't really know where to go. They're not good at taking care of themselves in any way, shape, or form. And so all we like sheep have gone astray, the Bible says. It's saying we need a shepherd. Just turns out that Jesus Eventually identifies himself as that shepherd. There's another statement made in the New Testament that says there is nobody righteous, not even one. In other words, there's nobody that's got this figured out. There's nobody that's doing it all right. There's nobody, nobody, nobody like that. There's no one righteous. We're all broken. There's another statement that's kind of an incredible statement. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You understand the Bible claims that the purpose of our lives is to live for the glory of our maker. That's rich life, that's abundant life when your life is counting for the glory of your maker. But unfortunately, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and really one of the points that all these things are making is that we're all the same. We're all kind of a spiritual mess. We're bound for hell. We're bound for separation from God. Why? Because that's what we want. If we don't wanna worship him, then we don't wanna be near him. But this is true of all of us, you see. Now, Now, here's what you need to know. Jesus being born in a manger was a display of God's humble love for you. And Jesus' death on a cross was a display of God's forgiving grace for you. And later Jesus' resurrection, that was proof that his plan had worked. It was proof that Jesus is the one true God. The one who was in the manger, the little baby who was so vulnerable, he is the one true God. He is the true master of the universe. And here's the thing, nobody comes to this God pretending to be master of the universe. That's not an argument that confuses him. (laughs) He knows better. Nobody brings him their resume and says, man, you need me on your team. You know, if you're a CEO, God is not impressed. And if you're an addict, God is not repulsed. A relationship with God is something that happens because of grace, God's grace. So I would suggest to you, here's this decision today. You know, for some of you, you you already follow Jesus, but there might be something in your life around which you just need to surrender. Kind of Jackie's story, you know? Are we gonna really move from California to Colorado? You know what, God, now you want us to go to Springs? And, you know, it took them a long time to get to heaven, Deer Creek Church. But there might be something you need to surrender, and you know this. If that's you, you know this. You're kind of in a wrestling match with God, and maybe that's the decision you need to be making this morning. Or maybe your decision's more, you know, Holly Hayes' decision, that decision that radically transformed her life, you know, choosing to follow Jesus. And you, you can do that. This is not hard to do you simply humble yourself you get real about yourself and about who God is and about your need and you get out of the extreme power U.S. leather boss executive luxury chair and you say God I'm not going to try to rule my life anymore it's exhausting I'm not going to be in charge anymore it's killing me Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want to surrender to you my will, my money, my time, my gifts, my words, my relationships, all of it, all of it, Jesus, I surrender to you. And everybody has to decide. Jesus is like a dividing wedge, really. He's this loving, good God, but he, he comes into our worlds and he says, you decide, what's it gonna be? Will I be king or will you pretend to be king? There's a passage, actually there's a whole book in the Bible. It's called Proverbs. It's one of my favorite books. It's a wisdom book. And in some parts of Proverbs, it's wisdom talking to us. And there's, uh, in the very first proverb, Proverbs chapter one, wisdom is actually speaking to us. And wisdom says these words. It says, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. And really, if you understand, this is the personification of God. That's who wisdom is in this. But, you know, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square on top of the wall, ancient cities with walls around them. She cries out at the city gate. She makes her speech. And this is what she says. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? Let me tell you something. That is a profound question. When are you gonna figure out that your ways are simple ways and they will not work? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge repent at my rebuke this is a plea it's a command repent at my rebuke and then then if you do that I will pour out my thoughts to you and I will make known to you my teachings the writer of Proverbs is saying you know what this whole thing of repentance turning from one thing toward another uh, turning towards God that that is what will trigger God revealing himself to you that right there nothing less nothing more and I just want to say, this, this is exactly why we're here as a church, friends. God is still doing this. He does it every day, changes people's lives, and God will do this for you. And I'm going to give you a chance to make that decision. I'm going to ask everybody, uh, if you would, uh, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And I would say this because I really believe it, that this is the most important decision a person will ever make. And so I would recommend to you, this is, this is not good to treat this casually. If you have never done this before, I invite you to commit your life to Jesus Christ as King. You can pray a prayer like this. You can pray along with me as I pray. Let these be your words or some of them. God, I acknowledge my sin and brokenness. I need you to come into my life. I have regrets. I've done stuff. I've been places that make me ashamed if I were to have to admit it to everyone. God, I ask you to forgive me. And based on the love of Jesus who died on the cross for me, would you do that, Father? Forgive me? And now God, would you come into my life and lead me and guide me and take it over and take over my time and my behavior and my relationships and my life and even my death, Lord. You know You know when that's even gonna happen. I wanna be a follower of Jesus from this day forward to know him as my forgiver and my friend and my king. I want to ask everybody, please keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And just, if you have made that decision today for the first time, if you have turned your life over to Jesus, I would, I would be incredibly honored just to pray for you. And I would ask you to indicate that by just raising your hand, just for a moment, just raise your hand if that's a decision that you've made this morning. God bless you. Anybody Anybody else? God bless you. Let me pray for you, Heavenly Father, you, you know every one of our personal stories, every detail. You see every heart, you love every man and woman in this room God you know about every raised hand, you know every story, every surrendered will, you know whatever pain or difficulty or sorrow or anger or confusion brings us to you. And I pray for those who just raised their hands, those who have handed their heart and their life over to you today. God, thank you for working in them to bring them to yourself. We rejoice anytime somebody comes into your family, Lord. Would you pour out love and comfort and bring just the right person, the right conversation, the right help for that person to be able to grow in their faith in you? And then God, I pray for anybody who's still struggling, who's still even resisting for whatever reason. God, just keep whispering to them, keep pursuing them, let them know they are loved by you until they come home. And now, God, would you speak to every heart in this room with the presence and the love of Jesus in these moments through these words become as real to us as they did to those men from the East who in that house on that day bowed the knee and worshiped Jesus 2,000 years ago. Amen.